You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. I am back today with a very special guest. I have Dr. Diane Tober here with me today. I've been talking about um, having Diane on for a while because it's something I've been really excited about. Um, we connected through, actually through Ryan, another podcast guest. She put us in contact. Thanks, Ryan. And it's really great because we, we are, have been doing a lot of similar work kind of over the years. And it's got, I'm really glad to finally cross paths with you, Dr. Tober, I, Diane. <laughs> yeah. So I want to tell you a little bit about Dr. Tober. She is the assistant professor at the University of California, San Francisco, the Institute for Health and Aging. She's also faculty at Bixby Center for Reproductive Health and in the Department of Anthropology, History, and Social Medicine. So um, Dr. Tober has done some amazing you know, research and that she's in the middle of, and we'll get in, into that a little bit more. And she's also the author of Romancing the Sperm, which I'm reading right now. I told her that I'm almost done with it. I'm kind of halfway through. And it is available. You can buy that on Amazon. And you can also, I'll give you a link in the show notes that you can buy that book. And this is a book about the shifting biopolitics and making of modern families. So it's so interesting. I've been really fascinating to learn more about the history really of sperm donation and just all the nuanced information that, that it's really difficult to find out there. Um, so I've really enjoyed your book a lot. It's been great. Yeah. Um, it's so, I'm so glad we're talking today because I've, we had a brief conversation on the phone and I already learned so much from you. I just think you have a wealth of knowledge on this topic and I would love to hear more about what you know um, and to be able to share the, some of your work with my audience so they can get to know you too. Um, and I will, yeah. And I'll also share um, how you can get in touch with her at the end of the show and um, how you can connect with her too, if you want to on social media or through email. But um, so Dr. Tober, you know a lot about, you've done a lot of research. So I kind of want to start with that and just, you know, what you have researched over the years and what your focus has been on and how it's shifted too. Right, right. Yeah, well, um, and thank you for that uh, wonderful introduction. I'm happy <laughs> to be here and sharing my, my interests with everybody. Um, yeah, so back when I was a graduate student, I was at University of California, Berkeley and UC San Francisco, and I was working on a project that looked at gender differences in response to infertility. And that project focused on how heterosexual couples, usually married couples, um, processed the emotions surrounding you know, feelings of failure, feelings of stigma, um, especially when their, their own gametes didn't work, letting down their partner, coming to terms with the idea of using donor sperm or donor egg. And um, this was back in about 1989 when I first started this work. And, uh, and as a research assistant, and one of the things that struck me as I was interviewing um, infertile couples, and again, mostly heterosexual couples, and is that people were calling up to volunteer for the, for the research project that fell out of the scope of sort of the heterosexual married couple. And um, so single women were calling up, wanting to uh, volunteer to participate in the study. Lesbian couples were calling up to volunteer to participate in the study that were also experiencing infertility. And at the time, nobody really thought about infertility as something beyond sort of the normative, heteronormative structure. And, and that really started me thinking back then about, oh, okay, wow, this is really interesting. How do people beyond, beyond those uh, you know, male-female partnerships um, think about their fertility, experience infertility, and what do they do <laughs> when yeah. they're experiencing infertility, right? Mm -hmm. And so at this time, when I first started the work, um, single women and lesbian couples were often screened out of, in, of, of being able to receive uh, fertility Treatment? Uh, treatment, exactly, wow. yes. So if somebody needed a sperm donor, for example, they would have to come in and stand in with somebody who would pretend to be sort of their infertile partner. Okay. Uh, and, and, and women had to, people in these situations had to jump through a lot of hoops to try to be able to get access to treatment. And I was really um, curious about not only 
already dealing with the, the challenges of infertility as a single woman or as, a, as part of a lesbian, a female uh, couple, but also what were the barriers to access and how do people overcome those barriers? So mm -hmm. for people that were not in these heterosexual married or couple relationships, they had a whole other level of, of challenges to getting access to treatment. Yeah. Um, and so that started me for my dissertation project, which turned into this book, that started me in interviewing single women and lesbian couples and their experiences with trying to access donor sperm. Mm -hmm. And from there, I also started doing some field work in some of the local sperm banks and looking at how different policies in these sperm banks were sort of framed by the personal philosophies and values of, of the founders. Mm -hmm. And then I also from there uh, added in um, speaking to sperm donors and, and how they think about uh, sperm donation, they think about the genetic material, and also mm -hmm. how they manage sexuality in the context of being a sperm donor, sexuality mm -hmm. and, and, and receiving pay for, for providing sperm and things like that. Yeah. So the, it, the, the project started off with this, this focus that just kept growing from there as the research developed. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's so complex and there's so many aspects to it that you learn as you, as you go. So yeah. what you, were, you found in the beginning that sperm donation was really in clinics that open to uh, provide sperm for, for the, uh, you know, this clientele that wasn't receiving treatment. They had their own philosophies that reflected them as people too. Right. And some of it was involved. Some of it had to do with uh, specific characteristics, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, in terms of the, the, the procedures and policies of the individual sperm banks, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, for example, in the book, I talk about, I pretty much compare three different sperm banks. I did do work in more than those three, but these three really stood out to me as having sort of diametrically or dra dramatically different approaches to mm -hmm. who they selected as sperm donors and who they would provide sperm to. So, for example, in, in Berkeley, in the, where I live, um, the sperm bank of California started, it was founded in about 1986 by a women's health collective and their prime motivation was to make uh, family building options available to people regardless of sexual orientation and partnership. Okay. So it was founded, um, you know, with the intention of being able to provide sperm to predominantly single women and lesbian couples, the very people who were screened out at that time from most fertility yeah. clinics and most sperm banks. Mm -hmm. um, a number of years later, the Rainbow Flag Health Services came along and they specifically were focusing on building lesbian gay families through mm -hmm. sperm donation. So for example, their donors were predominantly bisexual or, or homosexual men and the recipients were predominantly bisexual or homosexual women and also transgender uh, mm -hmm. people within that whole dynamic. Yeah. And again, the, the founding philosophy of that bank was to build, uh, you know, build LGBTQ families through uh, sperm donation. And they actually had a policy that uh, permitted donors and recipients to meet. Meet, yeah. Yeah, beforehand. Yeah. And for the donors to be able to meet the child, any children born within three months. That was pretty know, progressive. After. Very yeah. progressive, yeah. Whereas, and Sperm Bank of California ha was the first really to offer what they call identity release sperm, where a child can beat their donor at age 18 if they so mm -hmm. chose. And then on the other side of that, I went to the uh, repository for germinal choice, which was a very sort of, it, it was sort of, in the popular press, it was called, you know, the genius sperm bank, you right? Yes. It's a very eugenic message. Mm -hmm. uh, wanting to get the sperm of the so-called the best, most intelligent genius men, you know, mm -hmm. the laureates and so on. And was that the blonde hair, blue eyed? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But blonde hair, blue eyed. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I first walked into that sperm bank, I was really struck because the photos on the wall, I mean, yeah. it blew me away. I, I wrote about it in the book, but I had a visual of you walking down the hall. I could see those pictures yeah. and you processing that and going, wait a minute, what's happening here? You know? Exactly. Uh -huh. I, still, I still almost, over, almost 30 years later, I still tangibly feel in my body the impact of walking yeah. in there and seeing those photographs of all those blonde hair, blue eyed children just smack me in the face. Practically. <laughs> <laughs> a little haunting, isn't it? Yeah. And I know some of the donors who donated through there and they didn't mm -hmm. see it the same way at, at all because hmm. you know um and one person happened happens to be you know an acquaintance of mine and and um 
in in his perspective, he was doing something, you know, really altruistic and so on. But mm-hmm. the donors weren't paid. He wanted to help. He also mm-hmm. later, it turned out, came out as a, a gay man himself. So it's kind mm-hmm. of ironic that here the sperm bank was trying to filter out oh, wow. homosexual people. And, and then, not, they had, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So the policies that the founders tried to institute that are discriminatory obviously don't always work. And that's one of the I think is so fascinating in my book mm-hmm. is that how people worked around these barriers yeah. in order to be able to access the care that they wanted and needed. So, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. And so, what I noticed also when you were talking about the process of sperm, um, you know, qualification, I guess, for lack of a better way to say it, is that there was a criteria that they had to go through and that very few donors actually were qualified to be donors at the, at, after this process. Um, and, you know, it was a screening process. But what I didn't see was like the psych, no, a psychological, it was more of a medical screening process, right. not a psychological screening. Is that right? That's correct. I, I, most of the most of the sperm banks that I where I conducted some field workers and some interviews, most of them uh, put the donors through. You know, they tested the sperm. They see how well how plentiful the sperm is. You know, what the mobility and the motility are. Mm-hmm. They see uh, then they freeze it and they see how, what the survival rate is after it, it's thawed, and then they also do the medical screening such as um, you know uh, blood work and uh, STD. You know screening out STDs. Mm-hmm. Didn't really do too much in the way of genetic screening at the time. And, um, but one of the, one of the laws that, again, that I talk about in the book um, at the time, and uh, that gay men were barred from being, men who had sex with men were barred from being sperm donors because that was in the, in the height of the HIV crisis. Yeah. And, um, and so, for example, Leland, one of the characters in the book, had to really go through quite a bit in order to be able to um, have uh, male sperm providers that were that men that had sex with men Mm -hmm. yeah and that was the rainbow Rainbow organization yeah 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 Yeah. and um sperm donors were um so they were they were tested you know i think you said something maybe like less than 10 percent were actually accepted right yeah much had to come down to i mean there's there's certain things that were that were selected for in terms of um, you know, education kind of screening to some degree, um, height requirements, for example. Um, most most sperm banks didn't want men that were too short. Um, and, and interestingly, yeah, well, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, and, and it's very interesting because, so for example, one of the things people often talked about, especially as many of the women in my book that I interviewed, is that the lack of ability to find, quote unquote, ethnic sperm, you know, from men mm-hmm. of different ancestral backgrounds. And, and uh, so if I had a Latina couple or somebody who was Latina and wanted to find a Mexican um, mm-hmm. donor, it might be very difficult because they might not necessarily meet the height requirement, you know. But, um, oh, my goodness. Right. And same with Asian men. And so some of the sperm banks actually lowered the height requirement for different groups, but most of them still kept a height requirement of like 5'10", 5'11", and higher. So mm-hmm. it's really interesting. And when you look at, you know, when you look at egg donation, you mm-hmm. don't see a height requirement like that. You know, yeah. and the height can be equally inherited by from your female line as a kid from the male line. You know, it's equally uh, trust me, I know my <laughs> my poor son got my my husband's six two, I'm five two, and my son I I brought that that oh. down. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it definitely can come from from both sides. You're right. right. And, yeah. yeah, and it is interesting how we put those stereotypes on men and women, even yeah. even within this you know, donation with gamete donation. Oh, absolutely. You know, and now that I'm comparing, uh, now that I'm, my current research on, on egg donation, it's fascinating to see how um, the kinds of information and the kinds of screening processes be- with egg donors versus sperm donors and, and how, how they vary in these two different um, scenarios. Yeah, yeah, what yeah. stands out the most and how they vary? What stands out the most to me is that with egg donors, you get a ton of visual information. Mm. And so you'll get, you know, photographs from infancy all the way up to, you know, current uh, age. Sometimes you'll even get um, swim shot photos. You Mm -hmm. might get modeling shots. Sometimes Mm -hmm. you get videos. Um, There's a a vast amount of visual information you get on your, from an egg, uh, on an egg donor. Whereas with sperm donors, there's very comparatively very little information. You might get in some of the sperm donors, you might get sort of a, 
a shot of them when they were a child, mm -hmm. but very, very little in the way of, of current photos. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, obviously to me that sort of points to the pressure on females, you know, to conform in a gendered way, you know, and present in a, in a very sort of, are they attractive enough? And, and, and this oh, no. having a pretty yeah. donor. Yeah. Oh boy. When I was waiting for that, I'm like, what, I'm trying to think about what that would be about, you know, and it was a different time, you know, egg donation is more recent, but still yeah. it makes sense that you've got that gender stereotype and the pressure yeah. that are put on females versus yeah. you know, men, men to be tall and women to be beautiful. You know, it's kind of, which is silly because look at all the different types of women and men out there and different heights and looks and yeah. it's, yeah. it is, it's wild. So, yeah. So I was thinking about, um, Unless you wanted to say something to expand on that. I had a point, but I, I forgot it now, so that's okay. Oh, gosh, I know. I do that, too. Um, but I was thinking about, also, you mentioned you served single women. So um, that single women were probably, were having a hard time being served as well. And I know today, I mean, it's, I'm, I live in Texas, and I know of a, a doctor recently, as of a few years ago, that um, would not serve um, gay clients. Wow. and lesbian clients. So it still happens today. Let's hope not that much, but it, yeah. it still happens today, which is, it seems unbelievable. Um, but yeah. it does. So, and then the same could be for single women too. It depends, you know, the clinic has, it's up to them as to who they're, they will serve. Did you run into that? Um, when you were first looking at the population is the same thing with single women? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, kind of like, and, and then, you know, and, and so many single women, that were straight were looking at this as their last chance. chance. Yeah. So the for single women that uh, what type of did you do they talk to you about some of the challenges that they faced and the you know um, judgment or Absolutely. you know yeah yeah uh, single women that you know like uh, also experienced a lot of stigma um, mm -hmm. you know and and feelings of like what's wrong with me that I couldn't find the right man, <laughs> you know, and, and, and feeling a lot of remorse and that mm -hmm. they basically mourn the loss of, of doing it the right way. And then, and but then when they finally get to the point, like I have, I had one woman that told me that, um, you know, went to school, I got my degrees, I have a good job, I've got mm -hmm. money in the bank. And I can buy the white picket fence if I want, you know, mm -hmm. so I, I had this dream of, of doing this with, with a partner, but, um, you know, if this is the only way to do it, that's, that's how I'm going, you know, I want to have a child, you know, and, and, and that the mm -hmm. idea of not having, not being able to, to have, to be a mother just because they didn't have a partner, it's like, that didn't make sense to them. And it was really interesting to me at the time too, is, you know, when I was doing some of these earlier interviews, I was this, about five years younger than many of the women that I was interviewing. I was about mm -hmm. 30 and most of the people I was interviewing were 35 to 40 or so. And it was really interesting to me thinking about some of the challenges we had like at the time of, you know, can we confront these societal norms? Can we overcome the societal norms to become a parent and live our lives the way we want to? Yeah. And what are the obstacles to that and, and how mm -hmm. do we overcome them? So. Yeah, that's a great question. Now, did you, have you followed up with any of those that you interviewed back then? I, I have, um, mm -hmm. especially um, there's one woman that I actually interviewed for more near the end of the book, um, looking at some of the changes that have happened over the past however many years. And I followed up with Leland again from, from um, the, the Rainbow Flag at, near the end of the book, and also Bar mm -hmm. uh, Barbara Roboy from the Sperm Bank of California, and Alice Ruby from the Sperm Bank of California. So I did some follow-up interviews to bring it up to date. So the book, it actually has sort of a 20-something year of information about how things have changed from the 1990s to today. Amazing. Yeah. Oh, what a, what a just robust, you know, all in one place to get your, your history. Um, yeah. For any of those that are, I get people reach out to me all the time that want, that want to counsel in this um, niche. And they ask me, where do I start? Where do I learn? That's, yeah. that's where you start right there. Read Dr. Tober's book, because oh, it is, no, it is, it will, there are things in there that I have been doing this for 10 years and I didn't, I learned from reading your book. So I, I wish I had found it sooner. So oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Tell me a little bit about the research that you're doing now. Yeah. Because I know that you're still, still researching and, and oh, I'm yeah. excited about it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
about 2013, uh, an egg donor from a, from a uh, group called We Are Egg Donors, she was one of the co-founders of We Are Egg Donors, contacted me and we had, some, we had lunch and um, I, I, I believe she had known about my earlier work on sperm donation. And so we started talking in it and she had just founded this group and, and had about 30 people in it. And um, it turned out that many of the, the egg donors in her group had had some complications. Mm. And, and a variety of other issues that had happened in terms of um, contracts gone awry and a number of things that had happened. Mm. And so we decided at the time to, to collaborate on trying to get some research done on, on egg donors' decisions and, experience and experiences in health and well-being. And so back in about 2014, I, I, I returned to University of California, San Francisco, in order to launch um, what, as far as I know now, is the largest mixed method study on egg donors anywhere. Oh, so, unbelievable. Yeah. I'm very, I just, I, I want, I feel like we need the applause sound in the background. Yeah. Maybe, I'll put, maybe I'll put that in, because I think I know. Um, I, I mean, I couldn't be happier. There's been... I, how many times it's come out of my mouth, I've said to egg donors that mm-hmm. I interview and, and evaluate, we don't have any long-term studies. We don't have any long-term right. studies. This is what you know we know now, but we don't, that could change because we don't have any long-term studies. And right. now you're doing it and I'm so excited because that's what I've yeah. been wishing for and wanting and to see happen. So that's amazing. Well, mm-hmm. that's the interesting thing to me is that, you know, in this group, one of the things I kept hearing were we don't have any long-term studies and they were frustrated by that. And then I would read, you know, academic articles, oh, there's no long-term studies. And they've been saying this for 20 something, almost yes, 30 they, years. They really? oh my and gosh. I'm like, well, why isn't any 30 years? We're all complaining about no long-term studies and nobody's doing nobody's it. Nobody's doing so, it. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I guess I'll do it. And so <laughs> you'll you know, be the I one. The, yeah. the job that I had, I returned to research in order to do this. And it's been a huge uphill battle in so many oh, ways, yeah. personally and financially. But um, but I now have 500 egg donors in my study. That's and amazing. I'm just going to start tracking them over. I want to start tracking them over the time, over time. And I have yeah. um, mm-hmm. a survey component and I've interviewed another 120 of them. And I have Fantastic. 180 people waiting, to, waiting to be interviewed. Oh, the interesting thing is too, is they're not just from the United States, they're from around the world. And so I have egg donors wow. I've interviewed from Australia, South Africa, Canada, um, Spain. I have a, a grant that's comparing egg donation in the United States and Spain with very different regulate, regulatory practices. And so I've got this global perspective so I can see through the donor's experiences how things are operating differently mm-hmm. in different locations. And, um, and for example, most of the donors that I'm seeing, uh, say, for example, from Australia, mm-hmm. they're reporting pretty conservative egg counts per cycle. So you get 10 to 15, no more than that, and that's considered to be high. Whereas in the U.S. population of egg donors, I'm seeing numbers above the 30s to 80s. Mm. And so mm. that's telling me that there's something going on with practice here that's very different than some other parts of the world. And then how does that affect um, the donor's experiences? So, yeah. How does it affect them long-term? You know, that's one right. thing. When donors come and ask me, um, and th- their husbands are with them, and so they'll say, you know, usually the husband's main concern, honestly, is my wife's health. He said, what, you know, he'll ask me, well, how is this going to affect my wife's health? I really do want to help another family. It's a wonderful thing, but I do worry about her health. And that's when I have to do my thing. Well, there's no long-term studies, which I am so tired of saying. So now yeah. I, I get to not, now I'm not going to say that anymore. Now I'm going to yeah. say, well, we it's do a have a long studying process. In process. And if you're, and if you decide to be an owner donor and you would like to join that, here's how you join that study. Um, and that will help women like you and families like you long-term to just know the risks um, and be more to be better informed going into the medical process and mm-hmm. to even advocate for themselves better. So, you know, let's say they do have information that, you know, they don't want to be have as many eggs retrieved or, you know, that's just one example I know. And I'm not a doctor. So that, that right. you know, don't don't take that one to the bank. But, you know, if they have more information, they can take that information and just ask more questions and, exactly. and say, could we do it this way? Or this runs in my family and I've learned that this may be a risk factor. Is there a way we can reduce or minimize this risk factor? So there's, it's not putting kibosh on the whole thing. It's actually just making it better. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, that's really interesting. I know like you interviewed Ryan and and I interviewed Ryan as well. (laughs) And, uh, 
And but one of the things I was so impressed, is, even when I when I heard um, her tell her story on your podcast, was um, just how she got she became so informed and, and, and in that process of gathering information, she really she really found her own voice and her own way to advocate for herself. Mm -hmm. And I often think, and this is, I'm writing, I'm working on my next book on egg donation right now. And in one of the chapters is going to be called just eggs. And, and what I mean by just is how, mm -hmm. if you look at how, egg donation and justice and so on is there a way of practicing in a way that that has the same values of justice you know and self-advocacy mm, and that's one that. of the things yeah. that i'm really looking forward to um sort of flushing yeah. out of my brain and also on paper but oh and the ambiguity in the ambiguity of it too ambiguity of it is that that when people say oh, well it's just an egg Um, and I, it's nothing more than just an egg. So there's that too. So you can right. say there's a lot there just exactly. in that, just in that title. There's a lot there that can be exactly. discussed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and what's one of the things that egg donors tell me all the time too is like, oh, well, the recruiter told me, you know, it's just a cell. It's just another, mm -hmm. just another piece of my body, like blood or whatever mm -hmm. and, and so on. And, and, and that, that language gets internalized. Yes, it does. And, And um, in a way that sort of reframes how people think about what yeah. education is and what the product of that process is. Yeah. And it's interesting because, um, you know, I've, I've also talked to a number of donor conceived people and some of them, you know, are happy and fine and so on, but some are, some are also angry at, at sort of being a transaction and, and, and feeling like they were sold or that they were given away you know, a number of emotions can come up just like they do for people of adoption. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I think some of that clinical discourse that puts that distance between donor and cell and then as ascribes the relationship to, you know, the recipient parent and the child and so on. It, I think it does something in the whole process. Well, it, um, It dehumanizes it a bit. And I think it's yeah. because when we say it's just a cell, we, and that is true. And I've heard so yeah. many people say that, by the way. So, um, and I understand where you're coming from when you say that. And I, and so I think a lot of times they're just lacking that education around it. Because right. when, if you can think back to, if you can think to your own identity and your own traits, right. we, we just forget that, that, that uh, there's a big genetic piece to that and that We're already past that point of identity development, so we forget about that phase, exactly. and we forget what it took to kind of achieve a, a successful identity development. And we can have all types of identity development that goes awry and doesn't exactly. go well. And this is an area where it is not just a cell; it is so much more than a cell because it is a cell that is expressed in your traits and who you are. Right. And when you're searching for yourself, you do sometimes need that mirroring or those guideposts to check in with and, and say, "Is this me? Who am I?" Things like that. And so that's when it's more than a cell. And then there may be more than times in your life when you're well past that where it's not as relevant anymore. So. Um, And, and one of the things that I see, you know, especially in some of the older former donors is like, so, so yes, obviously, you know, an egg is a cell, a sperm is a cell and they're not, and they, you know, an embryo is a cluster of cells. Um, but, but down the road. So for example, if a child is, is born and, and live birth and so on and develops, um, and that egg donor later goes on to have her own children or has her own children or whatever. Mm -hmm. I find that many of my older egg donors over time are looking back on their donations differently than they did when they were 20. So I've had donors oh. tell me things like, like say a 40 or 50 year old donor is like, well, I used to think that that was, that, you know, it was just a cell and oh. it wasn't my baby. But now that I have my own child, um, I think of that uh, that child all the time is that my my child's half sibling and mm -hmm. I wonder about him or her and I wonder if they're okay if they're with a good family I'd like to meet them and so the emotion around um, the donation may change over time for people and and that's something that people don't know when they're 20 years old and going into it because they have college debt or whatever the case may be such a good point such a great point because then I interviewed a, a lady in a clinic who they want their donors to be mothers first 
So they right. don't allow any donors before that. And, and then you have other clinics that, you know, that are doing allowing donation at 18. I know. <laughs> so it's like, ah, and that's in different parts of the world. And, but you know, yeah. So I think it is important to know that your attitudes and feelings can change over time and yeah. that what you think now may not be what you think in the future. And yeah, so that counseling is so important to, to get that. And, um, yeah. So in, in terms of like what you've seen, cause you've, it's so great that you have this follow-up knowledge. So like I, I see them one time and then I don't get to talk to them again yeah. and I don't know how they are doing 20 years later. And it's right. something I've always wanted to, like, I just wish I could follow up and cause then yeah. it would give me better information on how to counsel and how to interact with people. Um, yeah. So that's why I'm excited to, to learn this from you yeah. as what they are saying later. And, um, but also what would, what would they say to you about a lot of times the agencies and clinics are really, um, more proponents for closed or anonymous, they're calling it anonymous. It's not anonymous anymore. We all know that, but, but that non, that there were, they're not allowing the parents and the donor to meet. Um, they're kind of making it difficult even, um, Mm -hmm. what, and they even tell a lot of parents that I interview, uh, that the donor is not open. That they do not, they are anonymous. And then I'll speak to donors and the donors will say, no, I'm, I'm actually open. I'm fine to meet. Most donors I've met with are, are fine with being open. They're fine to, they understand the child might want to know who they are. So what is happening? And have you found that, that disconnect as well in the communication? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. In in my study, like I said, of 500 or so donors at this point, um, about 90% want to be open and many of those want to be known from the outset and they're being told that nope the uh, either the clinic policy is only to have anonymous and Mm -hmm. and nothing you know no information about about identity Mm -hmm. or anything ever come out you know some are told that it can't ever come out not even at 18 but ever um they're not always necessarily even counseled on the the fact that direct-to-consumer genetic testing could you know lid off of being anonymous um, either and then a number of donors have actually that I've spoken to have actually persisted and then at the same time the recipient parents have persisted and they mm-hmm. managed to convince the clinics or agencies to help them uh, get connected and and they mm-hmm. both found out later well are, they told me that you, you only you wanted to be anonymous and oh well mm-hmm. they told me you wanted to be anonymous and so the same kind of things like what yeah. you see yeah but, um, from what I've seen the so far, the majority of the donors in my study do not want to be anonymous. They would prefer to be open. And okay. what I am kind of saying at this point is that obviously with the lack of anonymity, if somebody doesn't want to be open or mm-hmm. known at some point, mm-hmm. they probably should decide that, you know, think again as to whether or not egg donation yeah. is the right decision for them because mm-hmm. there's no way of maintaining their privacy or not anonymity at this point anyway. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I know that here in the U.S., especially, you know, with the there's direct to consumer DNA tests are very popular. And, you know, you almost hear all I hear all the time of people getting them as a Christmas gift and then finding out they were donor conceived. I mean, it's it's amazing. Like, you know, Ali, I've had Ali on my podcast and she says how, yeah, we usually expect in January we're going to have an influx of new siblings because they're going to get it for Christmas and they're going to find out that they're donor conceived. I wonder in, you know, I know in other parts of the world where there's less, um, maybe less testing at at this point, it may a little be a little bit slower for that to eventually happen because I know there are people that listen from, you know, countries from Russia, from Ireland and England and um, Australia. So, you know, it is, it will vary from area to area, but not much probably, right? I mean, the technology is moving so fast and reaching areas, it won't be long before it's impossible everywhere to be anonymous. Yeah. And and that's really interesting to me. I I know UK recently lifted the anonymity. It made it so people had to be in the registry, but Mm -hmm. um, in Spain, they've been really grappling with this issue. And that's one Mm -hmm. of the things that I'm looking at in my in my current research, I, I have a National Science Foundation grant that's comparing, like I said, egg donation in the United States and Spain, mm-hmm. and looking at how these different regulations, not only how they were developed and how they're enacted you know, on the ground through clinics and through reproductive practice, but also how they play into donors' decisions and experiences. So, mm-hmm. um, okay. and one of the things that Spain is really grappling with is you know, what to do about anonymity mm-hmm. and it's a huge huge discussion is often a very passionate discussion because <laughs> people that are, that are very very committed to the long-standing uh, anonymity anonymous oh. policy 
you know. Isn't and it illegal to be known at this point? It's only anonymous it's only donation anonymous. there. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Only anonymous. And, and it's interesting there too, because in Spain, the physicians choose the donors mm-hmm. based on the degree to which they're a phenotypic match to the recipients. Oh, so okay. um, as a recipient, I couldn't go and look at a catalog, for example, of donors mm-hmm. and say, oh, I want that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, but what would happen is um, in some clinics, they have what's called Phenomatch, which is sort of like a, a facial recognition program. And it yeah. actually measures the, 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 the structure of your face and then oh. measures the structure of a donor's face in their database and tries yeah. to match people based on, on wow. how what, much they look like each other, the hair color, eye color, blood type, and so on. Wow. And that whole system is built upon this notion that people won't tell. Mm-hmm. That, you, mm-hmm. that it will remain a secret and that... It, and that this Ooh, that's a sophisticated secret keeping uh, system. Exactly, exactly. Wow. <laughs> and when I, when I've had these conversations regarding, well, you know, with, when it comes to donor anonymity, how are you going to handle it when, um, you know, 23 and me hit Spain and, and I keep hearing things like, well, you know, it's not a part of Spanish culture, so it's not going to be. Yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, culture can change pretty fast pretty and quick, yeah. technology, you know, technology oh. drives culture change all the time. Yeah. And so, um, but that's really interesting to me. And, and, um, and, and so there has been some discussion about possibly changing the, the policy okay. surrounding anonymity, but I don't think that's really being considered seriously yet. Oh and um, oh I've, I've really got my eye on what's going to happen when, when you know, 23andMe yeah. gets Spain or Ancestry or any of that. Yeah. And people do use it in Spain to track, for example, adoptees that might have been put up for adoption or, mm-hmm. or stolen children from the Franco area era mm. have used DNA testing to try to find their their roots. Mm-hmm. So it's not highly unlikely that if somebody finds out their donor can see, they might do the same. Yeah. So, but we shall yeah. see. And then you have also people traveling to Spain too for, Absolutely. yeah, to be, uh, to use anonymous donors or traveling to, you know, other places, um, Prague, um, you know, Russia, places like that. So Ukraine is a big one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and people uh, um, from Australia do travel because they cannot do um, donation conception in Australia, so they travel abroad as well. Yes, some some do. I mean, you can do donation in Australia, but it's required to be open, yeah. and it's required to be yeah. uh, altruistic. So you're not going to be able no to paid, pay a yeah. donor put ten thousand dollars usually in Australia. I have talked to donors, I've actually interviewed on camera, um, donors that have come to the United States from Australia. Their recipient parents have come f- to the United States from, from Australia. Australia. They, yeah. They've done it here, you know, so um, yeah. that's- Yeah, on the soil yeah. here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So yeah, so known donation, and yeah, it's gonna be so interesting to watch to see how things unfold. and. Um, mm-hmm. It's certainly changing here really quickly, you know, because I yeah. just in the past two years seeing how the technology has influenced and also sh- social media, how it's changed right. perspectives and attitudes around donation mm-hmm. conception, um, kind of enable people to talk about it more and right. to um, try to confront some of these, so the stigma and the shame that's associated with it. Exactly. Um, you know, my biggest concern is obviously for the children, you know, that they don't internalize that, that shame and stigma that Absolutely. the parents are carrying. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's what, and I think that's one of the things that I've often heard you know, from, from other therapists as, as well is that, um, you know, you keep secrets about things that you're ashamed of, yeah. you know, and, and why would anybody feel ashamed of having brought this, their beautiful child into the world in whatever way that they could. And, um, some people mm-hmm. have access to sperm, some people have eggs, some people have a uterus. And if yours isn't functioning, you know, there's always other ways always ways of making a baby but, mm-hmm. um, but yeah. yeah it's so many narratives from a long time ago that we're still overcoming you know yeah. so changing those narratives is is a hard thing it's a it's a long process and especially when you have so many different moving parts too and we're all we're all kind of separate from each other and you know the more we can kind of come together and and work on behalf of the these families and not just the recipient parents but the donors and the children like have a, a voice that speaks for all and we're advocating we're trying to do best policy for everyone involved that's possible i i have to believe that's possible i mean oh, it has to be i think so i mean that's what yeah. kind of keeps me going is like, you mm-hmm. know I'm, i have you know all this data well what what can it 
what can I do with the data I have? Or what, what, what does the data I have say about what best, best practices might look like in, mm-hmm. in a variety of different areas, both in terms of breaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what, do, how donors, um, you know, can, for example, one of the questions like what, what, what are the things that might improve your experience with medical care, with agencies and so on. I think that's really important information for mm-hmm. professionals in the industry to have so that they can, so that egg donors are receiving um, the best care possible. Possibly the open donations might be the best thing for, for families created in this way. I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot to be to, to discussed and a lot to be discussed and, and, and um, gone over and, and mm-hmm. to think about, you know, about yeah. things to be done in a better way. I think you could have facilitators that um, yeah. that walk help people walk through the process. The doctors don't have time to, to be the, the psychological and social facilitators of this. So I think you yeah. could there's room for that. Um, it, just a more of a boutique approach to fertility medical treatment in general, rather than yeah. the medical model just isn't working. Yeah. I've had so many clients that are really traumatized by their experiences that they've been through with um, with treatment and. And not, and I'm not blaming anyone. I'm certainly not blaming the doctors, but it's it's just because the nature of this is so sensitive and so primal and so life and death, you know, that it it's just tender. It's it just is. tender, and so I think that we have to start really realizing that and yeah. adjust the model to serve serve families better. So well, exactly. I think I think that what you hit the nail on the head when you talk about like how tender it is, and the thing is, is that you know. A lot of doctors that I've spoken to, for example, see themselves, and somebody have even said this, as like sort of mechanics in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, they're there to fix a problem. Okay, you have you have eggs that don't work. This person has eggs that work. Where you replace one with the other, and it's like replacing a battery in a laptop. I saw it written in an article. So there was an article written about uh, mitochondria DNA, for example. But anyway, um, so it's a very me- mechanistic way of looking at the body. And that's part of medical training is to look at the body in this mechanistic way in terms of how do you fix whatever it is that's going wrong, you know, replacing one part with another, a kidney, this and that. And, um, and I think, and doctors necessarily must be focusing on how do I fix this problem? Yeah. That's their job, you yeah, know? Sure. And so mm-hmm. some might have more sensitivity and more beds, a better bedside manner than others, you know, that, mm-hmm. um, some people are just more sensitive than others in any kind of uh, profession. But I think like what you said is that having other people that are facilitators of this process that brings the humanity more into it, I think could be something that would be, could be fruitful and, and helpful to people because oh, sure. people don't have time to deal with somebody's emotion. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 It's, it's so true. It's so true. And I think that's um, yeah. And, and just even for, now, I won't go on a soapbox about that, but yeah, it's, it is important so that we continue to, to look at the practice and see how we can just help families to make it better. So, yeah, and you're doing that, you're doing that with your research. It's going to be, I just, I can't, I don't have enough words to express how excited I am about this. And I know it's going to change the way that, um, you know, we, we look at things in the, in a positive way. And, and, you know, that's what it's all about is, um, helping families, helping donors, helping, you know, I think there's a lot of fears that when we start talking about, um, looking at long-term research or really getting into the data, I think there's people get really afraid that, oh no, you know, this is going to mean the end of egg donation or donors are not, or even with openness, people, there's this fear that if you require openness, no donors are going to donate. You know what? I found that not to be true. That's not true, people. It's not true. So we have to quit believing these are fears. It's just fear talking. And the same goes for research is, we don't need to be afraid of it ending. It's only going to make it better. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, and, that, and like you said, you know, it, there is, and I keep hearing it from the medical world all the time, is that, oh, we're going to lose donors if we, if we you know, f- f- have a egg donor registry, for example, or a sperm donor registry or any kind of registry because they'll be concerned about privacy. And it's like, well, no, actually in my data, I can tell you that 95% of my donors want a mandatory registry mm-hmm. and uh, you know another amount want a voluntary registry or something you know that's not the way 
right number, but a high, a high number um, actually want a registry that, or they want to have contact or they want to at least have updates about the children born from their eggs and, mm-hmm. and so on, or, or possibly a picture or, or just be notified that there was a live birth. And, um, and that actually, for many of the donors, enhances the process. The donors that I find that are the most satisfied yeah. with the process also found out, you know, nine months later that uh, there was a live birth or that there was a pregnancy, you know, a conception within a, a few weeks. And they cr- donors have told me point blank, I cried tears of joy knowing that I contributed <sighs> to that because that, that made it all meaningful to me. Like, yes, I, I needed the money, but knowing that there was this other thing, you know, that, that happened. I did that. that yeah. That's a huge sense of satisfaction for a lot of, a lot yeah. of donors. That keeps them, uh, and, and actually can sometimes keep them coming back to donate again because that feeling is so intense. Yeah, so, it goes back to that existential meaning. And if exactly. somebody can't, you know, they want to give in that way um, and to make a difference in the world, and that's the way that that does provide a lot of meaning to them. And yeah, you're right. They also, it helps to, you know, if they need to pay off their debt or if they need to go, to, they want to go to college or they want to buy a house, put a down payment on a house. It helps. It's a win-win. So it's, Yeah. Yeah. And the interesting, one, one of the things that I see in the United States too is that we obviously we're, we compensate donors quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I've seen as low as, you know, a few hundred dollars to as high as $250,000 with most between seven and 10. Ooh, so yeah. that, that's an interesting piece mm-hmm. in and of itself. But that said, you know, that the, the fear that you're going to lose donors if you have a registry um, will not only is that not true because they actually do want a registry but that's also not true because the financial incentive is enough to to still have plenty of people coming forward to provide eggs Mm -hmm. uh, out of Mm -hmm. financial concern even if if there's mandatory identity release yeah um, and and i will tell you i was skeptical at first so when i was first interviewing donors 10 years ago and i knew that you if it was just an a financially motivated donation that you could disqualify them because um, that's the rule. The ASRM rule is if they if they if they clearly just want the money, you can disqualify them psychologically for that reason. And so I was, you know, I would look for it because I'm a rule follower, so I'm trying to follow the rule. And I was a little bit skeptical to be honest at first, and I'm thinking, are people just going to lie to me and tell me what I want to hear because they know they have to give the right answer? So I'd be looking for that. And you know what I found over the years is it truly was both. They truly were altruistic, and and the financial was the as an incentive too. So exactly. it was both. And I exactly. was looking to not believe that. <laughs> so yeah. it, yeah. you know, it, yeah. that's when I realized that there's, it is, it is such a, a big um, thing that people want to do from their hearts and to make a difference in someone li- in someone's lives. So yeah, I mean, yeah. And I, for the most part, like, like you said, in, in my data too, it, it appears to be both for, for most cases. There are some that said, you know, like I have one donor, she's like, you know, I don't, donated 17 times. I needed the money. I, I use it for a down payment on a house. And um, it was, it was transactional to me. 17 know? egg donations? She did 17 cycles. That and you're only supposed to do five max. You're supposed, the ASRM has a guideline that says, uh, you know, supposed a, to do more than six, mm-hmm. but um, it's just a guideline. So it's not a hard and fast rule. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of clinics will, will go beyond that. Um, and egg donors will like also, triple beyond that. I've heard as high as 19. That's oh my goodness. Recently. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So that, that is also something that I think, um, you know, long-term vision is that if we had a national registry that would help fix that issue. Okay. Um, okay. But, um, and, and on the other hand also, um, uh, I had another thought. And I think people, you know, you know, keep that in thought. And I think what's important for those listening to know is that donating your eggs is not like donating your sperm. Exactly. So 19 cycles of, of an of an egg donation is very, is pretty invasive. You're, you know, you're taking a lot of medications, introducing yeah. a lot into your body. So it's much more invasive procedure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we just like, again, don't have the long-term information yet, but we're going to soon have the long-term <laughs> information on what, what that does. Yeah. yeah, and and so my point was going to be that in some cases the clinics don't follow the guideline, mm-hmm. but in other cases also the donor might not necessarily tell the clinic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did six donations already because they mm-hmm. because of the financial incentive. So it's a complicated <laughs> issue. But yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's not the clinic may not be really encouraged or desire have a des- huge desire to go and 
investigate much further. Not that they would get information because it's confidential. You know, these medical and and psychological information is confidential. So yeah, it is hard to, um, it is hard to actually enforce. So yeah. Wow. Well, they do in Spain, they have a registry. And so in Spain, you cannot go beyond six live births in a geographical area. Okay. So, um, so for example, you can have, but you can do six live births in Spain. You can do six live births in, in France. You can do six live births in the UK. No. <laughs> yeah. In Spain, so they're not limiting the number okay. of per se. Okay. That's, that's highly unusual. You know. Is that to limit half siblings and in yes. in proximity to each other that live in proximity? Okay. Consanguinity. Yeah. Yeah, and that's another thing I I would like to mention is that when clinics, doctors, programs have um, donation, embryo donation programs. Um, one thing they are not being counseled on a lot of times is that their their child that's born through embryo, embryo donation could have a full half sibling in the same area, geographic location right. as them. So if that, you know, if their embryo donation was done through that clinic and they were a patient in the same area, then you can have kids going to the same school. And that I have interviewed donor conceived individuals who did go to the same high school with their half sibling and didn't know it until they were wow. adults. So wow. it can happen. So it's just, again, it's not, uh, it's not something to be fearful of. It's just something to know about and be informed about. And that's another reason why it's so important to disclose to your child that the donor conceived, because at least that will be on their radar when mm-hmm. they're, you know, a teenagers or adults to think, okay, if I meet another donor conceived person and we start dating, we should somehow check to make sure we're not biologically related. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. D- DNA test <laughs> ancestry.com or 23andMe. So yeah. are we going to get advertising? I know, that? right. I'll take all. Yeah. I hope I wish, yeah. <laughs> no. but yeah, that's all. That's a whole nother topic. So yeah. um, because there are ways that, that um, they think that they can improve the process of when they find out when half siblings find out or people find out their donor conceived by accident that the, um, that these companies can direct them to resources and things like that. So, yeah. yeah. But, um, well, this was so great. And I know we could talk about so many more things, but I don't, I don't want to keep you and take, you know, take advantage of you too much because I know you're busy and we're both, you know, it's the end of the day. So, but I'll definitely have you back and, right. and we'll keep talking and keep sharing. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know I'm going to get tons of questions so that I can come back to you with questions. And Yeah. And I'd love to see what yeah. the questions are too, because that, yeah. you know, I, I'm curious what, about what people are curious about. So I would love to know um, mm-hmm. what the questions are. So that sounds awesome. great. Yeah. It was great talking. Great talking to you too, and I look forward to talking again soon. Yes, me too. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow for more content, you can go to my Instagram and Facebook account at Jana Repnow LPC or follow Three Makes Baby on Instagram. You can get a copy of my book and the companion workbook to Three Makes Baby on Amazon. If you like this podcast, be sure to like and subscribe. Have a great day. 